Uh, Horace, dead Jew, welcome. I think this is definitely the first time, right? Unless I'm misremembering. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, now that you had, you know, uh, now that you have Phil on, I guess it's, you know, you're legitimate. Uh, you, it's worth doing. <laughs> you know, there was something I was supposed to say last week. I should have, and I forgot. It's a little bit of follow-up from that live episode of the show with, with uh, Phil Schiller. So at the end of the live episode, right towards the end, as I thanked him, I thanked everybody, and then I asked the audience if the live video stream had stayed up because we, we had tried something new. Uh, we actually had that set up before I knew that, that uh, Phil Schiller was going to be the guest. We were going to try to live stream it anyway. So I asked the audience, hey, did the live stream stay up? Because my thought was, hey, once word gets out on Twitter that Phil Schiller is on the show, it might you know overwhelm it. And some knucklehead down in front yelled, no. And, uh, and then Phil, Phil made a very funny joke. He said, hey, these things are hard. <laughs> but I felt bad. I thought, oh, the live stream is down. And then as soon as we got off stage, my, my phone started going off. And uh, people were texting me. And they were like, I'm watching right now live on the video stream. I'm watching right now live on the video stream. Did not go down. So I don't know who the knucklehead is in the audience who said that the live stream went down. And maybe there were... A, problems for a few people here and there but uh it apparently did not go down and there were an awful lot of people who who did watch it live on the stream and i wanted so the reason i want to call that out though is that the company uh that did it is a company called hybrid events group and uh, i'll put a link to their their twitter in the show notes um their their twitter is at hybrid events grp because i guess uh they ran up against the the limit in Twitter usernames. But anyway, they did a great job. Couldn't be happier with them. And I feel terrible that at the end of this live stream that they worked their asses off to keep up and do a good job on, uh, it looked like it did not stay up and it went down, but it didn't. So I just well, you know, speaking of, you know, if you have knuckleheads, I mean, the, the thing is, there's always someone, you know, who's not happy. So there's always, uh, and, and Apple people are just as likely, maybe more so to complain, right? So yeah, I guess so. I just don't know what would have driven somebody to shout out no that the stream didn't stay up when in fact it, it did. And and if there were any problems, they were minor and sporadic. Yeah. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. So uh, you you were out at WWDC. I was. I was there, and I was uh, I was sitting. Uh, I was I was actually fortunate to sit pretty in a pretty good spot. I was actually they they managed. I came in late. I had gone to the bathroom because they always tell you go to the bathroom, you know, because it could run long. And and by the time I came back out, you know, they had let everybody in. So I was like almost the last person to get in, and I'm like wandering around near the front trying to find a place because sometimes people people in the front don't fill up completely, and uh, and and I, I was actually. Uh, kindly taken by hand uh, by an Apple person and sat next to, actually sat behind uh, Ben Baharin and uh, and his father, um, and and so I had a I was like the fifth row, and and it was it was really uh, the best seat I ever had, and for that that that's what I got for being late, you know. Uh, so it was it was for me it was a thrill to be. To be in that in that great spot, and and you know, in previous shows, I remember sitting behind you. Uh, that, was, that was funny, sandwich behind between you and uh, like Renee, for example. You know, uh, and, and so there's always these great people you meet there, and that's almost more exciting than than the show itself. You know, just getting to meet these people. 
Yeah, I have been to enough of these now. It's funny because it's like it's dawned on me that now I'm I'm like in the, I've been to enough of these keynotes where I'm sort of a veteran rather than a, a a rookie. And I but I still think of myself. I still think every time I go to one of these things, like wow, I can't believe that I'm invited to attend one of these Apple keynotes. I know it's I've a been. it's a little bit thrilling every time. I've I've probably been three or four. And it's it's still you feel the little bit of a, a tingle every time, uh, and it's kind of feel privileged to be there. Yeah. And uh, I've had the same experience though, where sometimes if you want a good seat, it's actually advantageous to not wander in with friends or colleagues, or you know, because what happens is you mingle before they open the doors, and you see people who you know. Like remember, I think it was you who took the picture of me and Ben Thompson wearing seemingly identical shirts this year. Seemingly, I thought they were identical. <laughs> no, there was, a, they were in fact different brands, but it would be very hard for anybody. I think you'd have to like look at the label to see the difference. So Ben Thompson and I showed up at at the keynote dressed like twins, and uh, you were kind enough to document that for posterity. But anyway, you run into people who you know like that. And then you go in the keynote together. But then if it's like a group of five or six of you, you look for five or six seats and it limits where you go. Sometimes going in just by yourself or going to um, like you like you go into the restroom. One time, I think it was last year for WWDC at, at, uh, at the keynote. It used to be for years and years. There's always been a 10, 10 o'clock start. And it used to be that they let press in very close to the end. I mean, sometimes to the point where, where people would start like getting nervous and be like, are they forgotten us? Are they going to start without us? Like there was one year where we, you know, the members of the media didn't get in until, I don't know, five or 10 minutes before 10 o'clock. Um, but it's part of the new Apple with Tim Cook is that stuff runs a lot more regularly and stuff starts exactly on time. I mean, if you've noticed with Tim Cook, the keynote start at 10 I mean, like <laughs> to the second. But, you know, I noticed a couple of other details. And maybe you already went over this with your audience. But I, a couple of details. One, they, when they let the, the, the press in, they, um, they segregate the photographers from everybody else. Oh, no, they've always done that. Yeah, yep. they've always done that. But I, the purpose is that, you know, they've got their own little, they've got their own little bleachers uh, or whatever, wing. And then the other thing that's interesting is that then there's kind of like this time when the executives who usually sit in the middle section and the front middle so the executives begin to you know come in and take their seats and they're basically there mingling a little bit with each other and it's like you see the camera guys just going nuts taking all these shots of the executives mingling and i i wonder how much of that is planned so that they have this photo op for for this kind of casual uh, 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 interaction that happens with uh, with uh, with some of the the superstars of Apple, if you will. You know, you see people would just like in the audience stand up and and you yeah hey hey I see I see Johnny you know or I I, I see Angela or I see so and so and it was funny to see how I you know it seems uh, so natural but I wonder how much of it is actually on purpose done that way to create the opportunity for the photographers to take their shots and, and have something. I don't know. That's my take. Uh, it's definitely strategic. I'm not quite sure what the strategy is, though, and, and about which sight lines they're looking to give the photographers. It seems to me like what they want is they want the photographers not close, but – and so if you are – if you're serious about taking the photography at the event, you really want to bring – long lens and assume yep, that you're yeah. going to, you're going to be zoomed in from a distance, um, and that you're not going to get close. Um, but anyway, last year, I, I, I think it was last year I, you know, was 
walking to the um, to the Moscone from my hotel, and it was around nine thirty, so it was about a half hour before. But I got a text from a couple people that hey, they've already let us in, and I was like, oh crap. So yeah. I was like, you were this year. I was like one of the last ones in. And had a similar type thing where I wound up, you know, somebody from Apple PR spotted me looking for a seat and was like, here, come on up here. And I sat, I don't know, fifth or sixth row or something. But it's weird sitting up there because when you're up there with all the Apple employees, they're the people who sort of applaud at strategic points uh, and sort of try to get the applause rolling at applause points, which, you know, it's it, to me as a member of the media is, is not really appropriate. It, it feels a little bit like you're sitting in the home team crowd when you're up there. Really? I know I didn't sense that, but I, I did sense in other events that there were some cheerleading going on, but I didn't see here at this one, but in the, uh, it, it, it is, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting experience. I, I, I guess it's, uh, we're very privileged that we have that access to, to the event, uh, the way we do and, 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 uh, to each other. And it's wonderful. And, and in fact, that's where I, I, I asked you, I said, Hey, how about we, we, we get together and do this. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. exactly where this got set up. Um, so now we're a couple weeks out, and I feel like and we're about to enter what's more or less the summer doldrums news-wise. I don't think we're going to get, you know, other than the launch, the, this, the imminent launch of Apple Music, uh, there's not much going on. In, you know, never really is in July or August. Uh, so I'm just curious what you think overall with a couple of weeks behind us, what you think in hindsight of, of you know, the WWDC keynote. Well, the, so the the you know it's I'm not a good analyst of events that way because I tend to look for the under the under um, the understated and the the is there is there a deeper thing and I don't dwell on the feature set so much I'm not making a list of the big ideas I'm trying to find where the small ideas and. Um, the, 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 to me, uh, the, the big thing this whole year has been around what I call humanism of Apple. The idea that Apple is presenting a new face, um, a new definition of its, uh, of its principal operating strategy, which is really about not the algorithm. It's hard to put a word on it because... The, the 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 dominant uh, logic of Silicon Valley is that that power of the algorithm is power of the uh, of the of 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 business and 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 all that flows from it and and somehow what I see is this shift where Apple's saying you know we don't necessarily believe in the power of the algorithm in fact we may actually believe in the anti-algorithm, and the anti-algorithm is the human being. And the word I came up with is humanism, although humanism is a word that was used to uh, counter the notion of uh, a world based uh, around faith. And so so this was a sort of a, maybe I got the timing wrong, but maybe a renaissance or a, a period of time when, when people began looking at, the, at humans at, at the center of the universe or the center of thought. And, and that, that idea of putting man in the center was a was big deal back then because the church was, was the dominant leader. And, and so my way of thinking is that I'm not trying to position against faith, but rather position against the notion of the 
the all-powerful algorithm as as the uh, the counterparty to this to this idea. And so, what's the evidence? The evidence is number one uh, that they believe in curation. They believe in actual people making decisions. When we've seen this already for years and years on the App Store, that there would be someone making now. That means they're fallible. That means they're going to make mistakes. That means they're going to make all uh, you know upset people and offend people. But with it comes also the benefit of judgment that comes from a, from a, from the mind of an individual. Second piece of evidence: Johnny Ive, in all his in all his visions of what people want, uh, he's making a judgment. He's making a a call. He's calling the he's curating essentially what it is that we want. Uh, and rather than than offering every possible option, they'll tell you, no, these are the best options. We believe that. So these are old stories. The new stories, I think, bring it even more to the surface are, well, we're actually going to decide how to surface uh, the music that people should listen to, or we're going to mm. surface um, the, uh, the, generally speaking, media. And so trust us with, uh, with our judgment, with our taste. And that idea is so opposite to the algorithmic ideas that exist uh, as the norm that I feel like somehow this is the beginning. And also, by the way, the idea that trust us comes down to privacy, trust us comes down to uh, to uh, being able to put together the, the integrated package that we think are the features that you really need and no more than that. And so this whole idea has been around sort of latent but suddenly it's springing up and going head-to-head with algorithm-based uh, uh, business models. I think that's a great observation. And that's exactly the sort of insight that, I, I honestly, I'm looking for you from from the keynote. Like, whereas it's not about point-by-point point critiquing the, the performances on stage, but rather trying to suss out what the actual meaning was. Because I, and I think you'll agree with me here that... I, I think one of the more interesting things of today's Apple, let's call it Tim Cook's Apple, because I think that's roughly, you know, I think it does correspond roughly to to when he took over as CEO. And I think it's it's deliberate, and I think it is his personality coming to the surface. I think Apple wants to be better understood by people outside the company. Whereas before, I don't think it was so much that they they wanted to be misunderstood, yeah. but that they just didn't care if you didn't get it. They, they they want they reveled in the in the mystique of Apple. I think the mystique of Apple was uh, there's value in being mysterious. There's value in being misunderstood, even because at some point you're going to get the aha moment that you were wrong, and then those who become aware of it through their own discovery, own that fact even more deeply. And I think you're right. That is the, the sort of the Jobsian ethos of public relations. Yeah. Preserve a distance. And you're right. I think there's the sensitivity more towards, well, you know, maybe we don't need to be so mysterious after all. Um, but But here's where I feel that there's still the mystique, which is that they speak actually plainly of what their intentions are. And when you see this in, in, in Tim Cook's statements like, the product is our North Star, that we are concerned about doing good work rather than being profitable or having a rate of return. Uh, when he sometimes very pointedly attacks some, some Wall Street uh, 
on the tree. Other times, you know, you see this this language from from Johnny Ive about does a product deserve to exist? And we, you know, and and so we you see these framed, uh, very carefully articulated statements, which which I would say ninety nine point nine percent of listeners throw away as you know in one ear and out the other, and it's just as if like these guys are just using some kind of um, some kind of poetry to to bamboozle us. But what I I my I th- I think perhaps my favorite thing to do in Apple analysis is li- take literal word out of the horse's mouth analysis of the framing of the phrases, every little detail when they say something, and deconstructing it and saying, you know, there's a code in here. There, there's there's actually meaningful communication going on. So my take on it is yes, there is a more there's more articulation using using um, coding coded phrases and this is it's Steve Jobs didn't need to he would speak from the heart and so what he what came out of his mouth was was deconstructed but the, but he was the was the spokesperson and now we have simply a lot of other spokespeople who are doing these types of very interesting phrasings and and I take them and I I I, I see from that to me that is what guides my thinking that guides my analysis. Rather than saying uh, the the you know what the numbers say uh, and and what the profit logic might be, I always ask, uh, given their language, how what are they going to do next? So if, to give you the example of like you know people were asking a few months ago, what about the car? What about the car? And I said, well, here's how I would work that out. And I would say, what did Johnny Ive say about about product? What does Tim Cook say about product? Therefore, the product that has to emerge has to comply to these rules. Uh, they have to have a meaningful contribution. They, it has to be. Uh, it, it has to be uh, uh, better in ways that are that in which Apple can contribute, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, I, what I would do is simply take those verbatim co- you know, communication from Apple and and use those as my lenses to analyze the, the questions at hand. So, in that sense, uh, that's how that's how Apple is is different in my way in my way of thinking because if you did that with 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 Steve Jobs comments he would flip flop and on the, a lot of them were simply like today I feel this way uh, and and they couldn't really rely on those statements as guiding guiding principles and I think Apple remember once it, remind, it reminds me when Tim Cook was acting CEO he went on a conference call and he almost like stated a poem in a poetic way um, what we believe in. And it was like one of these like speeches buried in the in a conference call with analysts yeah, that usually that. introduce it. And I I wrote it up and I said I called it uh, the Tim Cook Doctrine. And this was before he was full time CEO or I should say permanent CEO. And he he you know I wrote those down and I I I broke the lines up in a way that it almost looked like a poem. And I said, you know, there it is. There's the there's the uh, there's an algorithm right there about how this business works. We're going to cross pollinate. I remember he used that phrase. Uh, uh, you know, I don't remember a, a lot of it, but it's, it's, I can go back and, and dig it up. It's it's the doctrine, and in, 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 it's still in searchable in the blog. So anyway, that's the kind of guy he is, I think, and that's been that was way back in what 2000, uh, probably uh, eight or nine. So it's it's um, it's very much a reflection of of what what you think of as uh, Tim Cook's Apple. Yeah. Um, 
And so you, I, I think part of went wrong in that keynote was the way that, and I don't know if you thought this too. I know most people who I've spoken to agree that the music segment at the end was, was too long and disorganized. But in hindsight, as we get closer to the launch of, of Apple Music, and I read more and more about it, I see that as the picture becomes more clear to me, it was there. It just wasn't, it, it, the information was there. What I, what I think we should understand about it was there, but it, it, it was too disorganized for it to be clear. And so part of it is what you said about the humanism and not trusting in the algorithm. And it's, and I know it was there and I know that, that they mentioned it a few times with the beats one radio, um, how it's going to be, uh, you know, human selected, you know, there's, curated, there was, yeah. yeah, curated, perfect word. But there was a New York times profile today or yesterday, earlier this week of Zane Lowe, who's coming from uh, BBC one in the UK, mm-hmm. um, super highly regarded DJ. Um, and, and I know at, this was mentioned in the keynote, but it just kind of, I lost it because I was just losing focus, but it, they mentioned that it, it, their intention with this is not so much that you're going to pick your favorite genre and go go to station. It's sort of like the anti-XM radio. Like uh, we've got XM radio in our car, and I think there's like two, 200 stations or 300 stations. I don't know. It's an unbelievable number. But you can d- dial into um, – I mean they have an entire station that's just Frank Sinatra, and there's like a station just for Elvis Presley. Um, with this Beats 1, their intention, I mean, obviously, you're going to be able to stream music based on your preference if that's what you want. But if you listen to Beats 1, it's any new music that they think is interesting, which is, to me, a really interesting way to go. And it is absolutely not algorithmically generated. Absolutely. And that's exactly the thinking that I think this new Apple is about. And I think with Johnny, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Jimmy uh, Iovine was the one who probably sold them on, on the idea that you can do this to music. And let me let me guess here. I have no, 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 no evidence, but let me guess that he probably remembered back in the days when there were influential DJs in the United States who, who pretty much uh, drove musical taste, uh, who could, uh, you know, who, who, who could... Uh, uh, influence a generation uh, by selecting the right music and, and playing it, and you know over time that became corrupted by by scandalous type of you know bribing bribing and so on. But but the job of me of, of radio was for the an, 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 a generation to discover the music that 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 spoke for them. And what 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 we're seeing now with the, with with an abundance and an overabundance. Of choice is that there isn't you, you assume here's the assumption I think of the of the of the internet is that um, you can select it for yourself and I think that's not the case for most people. Secondly, you can use your friends as a as a selection criteria, which is somewhat what Twitter does. Is you use a your your feed as a way to select what to read. Uh, and so there's that notion that you select good friends and your friends are going to select good things for you. Uh, but that has its pitfalls as well. What if you select the wrong friends? And, 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 and finally, there's the algorithm, which is the idea that let's, let's sample what you like and then we'll, we'll give you, uh, we'll give you uh, selections. And all of these were, are, are the, the, the modern version of discovery. What Apple is saying is let's go back to this idea that no, it's an individual that we trust, an individual who who has 
supreme ability of taste, supreme ability at judgment about things, and and this again, this is this is a reflection of of the uh, logic of of uh, Johnny Ive and the, even the logic of Steve, uh, Steve Jobs, which said, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to decide what products are the the ones we're going to dedicate so much energy to. And we're not going to do a portfolio strategy. And we're not going to hedge our bets. And we're not going to do all these things. We're going to hit a home run every time. Um, and by the way, you know, if I were to say, well, that's that's crazy. It's only those two guys who can do it. It's 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 a it's it's not something that anybody else can do. But look at Hollywood. Look at the way companies like Pixar are able to hit home runs every time because they have a brain trust because they selected people who know how to make great stories and gave them the authority to say, yes, spend three, four hundred million dollars uh, on this project and three, four years to get it done. And yet they, they do it every time. And, it, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we love them for it. Uh, in contrast to a company that, you know, the old Disney who just, you know, put out a portfolio and say essentially they're playing with a spreadsheet in order to decide what to make and that's that's a difference instinct versus spreadsheets or the human versus the algorithm and and this is what surfaced i think through this through this event is how much more music is going to turn into that for, for as far as apple's concerned and that is a very very different thing than what we've heard in the past from everyone else yeah Pixar is a good example, too, because I think that they've been so open about so much of their process. It's not really a mystery, according to them, you know, yeah. how they've yeah. been so successful. And yet nobody else can bring themselves to do it. And, and To like, do it, yeah. It's like hiding in plain sight or here's the, here's the formula. But no one, can, no one has the courage to do that because it requires saying no to things which are nearly... Uh, uh, proven to work. Uh, you have to say that portfolio theory is the foundation of finance. And and and, and who would, in their wildest mind, it's like if I were an investor and I would say, oh, no, forget about buying a basket of securities. Just buy one company and own it all your life. Yeah, That would be the strategy that Apple is suggesting they do as far as their investments or that Pixar does in terms of their investments. Yeah. That you have to have so much faith in that decision that you know you're throwing away the hedge opportunity right you're throwing away the the what if it doesn't go right and and so so remember when steve jobs said uh focus is about saying no and focus is 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 literally about saying no to everything else but the one thing and so it, that's what's so hard and um and here you know, when we think about it, that so this is very deep in the in the psyche of Apple in many ways. But but when we're looking at it now through the through this question of products that they're launching as services, they're essentially t t telling, I think, that you know, you, I, we're asking you to trust us to act to make those choices for you when it comes to services and and things we're going to give you, uh, and and uh, and that means t saying no to a lot of things. And many people will just you know huff and puff and say. How dare you? But but those who, who you know, go ahead, you don't have to buy. This isn't like, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're not obligated. But it's 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 the way that I think that you're going to appeal to the the type of audiences that are probably the the best audiences to have. Yeah. All right. Let me take a break. I want to keep talking about music afterwards. But um, let me take a break and thank uh, the first of our three sponsors for the episode, and it's our good friends. I'm so happy to have them back. I love this company. 
Uh, it's our good friends at Backblaze. You guys remember Backblaze. Uh, online, unlimited backup for your Mac. Uh, what do you do? You go to backblaze.com. You download their software. You install it on your Mac. And you get 30 days free trial. It backs up everything on your Mac. Everything. Just backs the whole thing up to the cloud, their cloud-based server. Um, and after the 30 days, you pay five bucks a month. That's it. And it just backs up your whole everything. You have an external hard drive in addition to your internal hard drive. It backs that up too. Everything. Uh, they have over 150 petabytes of data backed up so far. Uh, and they have restored over 10 billion files for their customers. You can access all of your data from your Mac or from multiple Macs. If you have two Macs, sign up for two accounts, five bucks per machine per month. That's it. Everything's online, but you can access it anywhere. Uh, you can use their iPhone app, I iPad app, and get just one file when you're out and about. If you need to you know, send a file to somebody and you just log into Backblaze from their app on your phone, uh, go through all of your files that are backed up, find the file you want, and do whatever you want with it. So you can download one file at a time. If you have a catastrophe, if you need a, if a disaster actually strikes, uh, you just go to your account. You can just pay, and they'll just put everything from your account, load it up on a USB drive, and uh, have it overnighted to you. Uh, so you can install one, one file at a time from anywhere you want, get all of your files, uh, put on a USB hard drive, whatever you need. 25% of all of their restores, though, are just one file at a time. It's once you have the ability to get any of your files anywhere, you realize it's more than just uh, like backup or recovery from catastrophe. It's it's really about convenience. Really great software. I recommend it so wholeheartedly. I've got it on uh, every Mac in the house here at uh, Daring Fireball headquarters. Uh, and like I said, it's a risk-free, no credit card required trial. So you have nothing to lose just by trying it if you haven't yet. Don't put it off. Putting off getting a backup system in place, worst thing you can do because that's when Murphy's Law will hit. So just go here. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball, and they'll, they'll know you came from here. Uh, and sign up today. If you haven't signed up so far, you're nuts. It's, it's a great service. Backblaze.com, daringfireball. Uh, so music, uh, part of the news of the last week was this crazy to me, the Taylor Swift story, right? So we're recording here on Friday, June 26th, and it was last Sunday where Taylor Swift wrote, uh, a blog post post on her Tumblr account, more or less calling, taking Apple to task for the fact that in the, in the free trial, for Apple Music, uh, the three-month free trial, Apple wasn't going to pay artists for the music that got streamed. They were only going to pay uh, a percentage based on you know the paid accounts once the free trial period is over. And Taylor Swift's argument was, uh, "This isn't right. You know, the free trial is a promotion for your service. We should get you know we the artists should get paid no matter what." And and it not only worked it worked by the end of the day by the end of the day at eq uh you know this apple senior vice president in charge of of music among other things was tweeting that uh okay i've called taylor swift we've worked it out and and we'll be paying artists even during the free trial period 
I'm I'm kind of blown away by that, just by the speed at which it happened and how it kind of, in, in terms of being a longtime Apple observer, that it it like the public aspect of it that it took place, uh, you know, from one Apple executive's Twitter account. Yeah, I I was uh, yeah I was watching it and I was I was I was bemused. I I personally I didn't have an opinion on it on one way or the other. I think this is just business, uh, you know, terms uh, terms and conditions that are in contracts are often negotiable, and sometimes you use boilerplate that might not, you know, be appropriate for everybody, and, you know, uh, then you change it, and, and uh, that's that's what we call negotiation, and it wasn't, to me, this is just a matter of business. But the uh, I think the noteworthy thing was your, your you know your observation that they were so responsive to it in such a public way, and in fact that so negotiation took place uh, in public on 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 Twitter. Uh, <laughs> that that amuses me greatly. I, I'm not outraged. You know, in fact, I refuse to be outraged anymore um, about anything. So I'm 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 a, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit just. Uh, just reflecting on on the age we live in that this is happening and uh in the end it turns out very well for everybody i i don't think this was a big deal for apple to even do it initially but they just probably it wasn't something that they thought of they said well it's just standard practice you know that yes it's our service but it's 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 in the end going to grow your business as well so you know where we think of it as a partnership so we both take a hit but at the end, uh, he said they said, "All right, well, we'll absorb that cost uh, up front and, and pass it on." Because you're right, you know, we're probably very well off. It's money we don't need as much as you do. But it, you know, it, it's it's just the way it happened. I guess that's what's interesting. Same to me, and I, I feel like it's also further sign that, and I think Apple accepts this. I don't think there's any other way. But with the success that they've had and the size that they've grown to. A lot of the times when something like this happens, there's no way that they can truly win. Because I saw people saying the next day, like on Monday, that this is sort of makes Apple look weak. It makes them, you know, that they capitulated, that they that they gave in, you know, uh, and it doesn't make Apple look good that, that they scrambled to do this. Whereas my guess is, is that inside Apple, that their take on this is why not make it look like we're paying attention because we are paying attention, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we saw the Taylors. Why, why put it off? Why, why, why make it look, why wait a week or two and make it look like we're a black box who doesn't respond to stuff like this? Or like we called our lawyers and we called our, you know, consultants or something yeah. like that. It's, 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 it's clear. I, I so, think it's so. as simple as what Eddie Q said, that he and Tim Cook talked on the phone Sunday and said, all right, we'll just, you know, we'll pay him during the trial period. And we'll, yeah, you know, exactly. And then, so, uh, and by the way, I think the reason Apple is in the business of music anyway is because they love music, as they say many times over and over again. Again, one of these statements that people just, you know, just goes right over, over uh, consciousness because they say it all the time. You know, we love music. And by saying we love music, they're not just saying, yeah, we love being, uh, and, you know, remember the, the, the dancing of, of, <laughs> of Eddie Q on stage. It's, it, the, the point is that they do love music because actually they think that that's a core uh, that's a cornerstone of the business. That is, uh, they want to be seen as a brand associated with music musicians and artists and creative people. 
Uh, going back to Think Different, who do they put up on the Think Different campaign? They're all people who are creative people, fundamentally, whether they were scientific, artistic, cultural, uh, social creative people. And so the idea is that that's what the brand rests on. And so I don't know anybody who would think that Apple benefits by being a tough guy with artists. They come to the story. They're, they're coming to the, to the table with music. In fact, spending all that money on a music, the, the, the acquisition of Beats was spending a ton of billions of dollars on a company founded by musicians or music executive uh, uh, you know, a partner with a with a with a musician, and the the, I, the whole company is like saying, trying to tell the world, we're on the we want creativity to flourish, and and we want our tools to be used by creative people. So we're on their side, we're on your side, to to you know addressing their customer in a way, and so that that is why. If 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 they quote cave into them, they're just saying, look, we're just being overly, you know, the, the fault is uh, is that we're being actually overly generous, when maybe a cynical view would be that we ought to be much more, uh, uh, y- you know, uh, tight tight with money, and that's not a good thing to come across as being being uh, being restrictive with your with your with your terms you can be restrictive when you're dealing with another company and I'm sure they drive a hard bargain but when it comes to artists the, the way you want to project is that you're very, being very generous and that that therefore reflects on also on developers ultimately who are part of the ecosystem and so I think it's uh, it turns out well the only people who are going to be uh, who are going to be critical of the of that decision I think are are, are, are cynics because I don't I don't think Apple's brand is about uh, being being a uh, being a confrontational with those who um, who uh, uh, use its tools. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I think I saw some of that cynicism in in the aftermath of this. You know, okay, we'll you know we'll pay you during the free trial thing if it's if that's such a sticking point. And I think the truth of it is that it's so little money to Apple. I mean. There, the, you know, the terms have leaked, and apparently this is fairly standard across the industry. You know, Spotify is paying somewhere around the same amount, where it's about two tenths of one cent per play for for streaming. Um, so, in other words, five streams to get one penny in payment, yeah. <laughs> which is so little money, no matter how popular this thing gets. I mean, just a little back of the envelope math, but if, you know, it, it, you know, like a hundred billion plays is, uh, it times, wait, let me think. I got to make sure I get this right. hundred, is this right? hundred billion, all right. Times point zero zero two is only $200 million, which is a long, you know, I, it's yeah, just, it's just I not don't that, even know. You know. They paid three billion for Beats, and you know it's it would be a long time before they paid three billion uh, in in fees just for. And this is just talking about the free trial period, right? Once people pay for the ten dollar a month thing, the payments will all come out of you know. There's no charity involved. There's no you know. Apple's not eating the cost of anything. Everything will come out of a percentage of of what people are actually paying. Um, yeah. So it, it it doesn't matter how popular Apple Music is, how many people sign up for this free trial, and how many songs they play on it. It just can't add up to an overall meaningful number 
for Apple in terms of what they would be paying. So I think the idea that and, and the idea that they were trying to squeeze that m minuscule amount of millions of dollars because that it, ultimately it's going to be into millions, not billions, no matter where sure. it falls. The idea that they were trying to screw artists out of that and take advantage of them in the free period, I think, is is it's too cynical. I mean, it's certainly possible, but it just doesn't sound right to me. I think that it's exactly what they said, which is that they're hoping that they're going to get so many people onto paid accounts and therefore have like a real sustainable model for artists to get paid for digital streaming that, uh, you know, it, they just saw that free trial as a way for everybody to sort of benefit from the long term of having people signed up for actual paid accounts. Sure. And that's the way it works. I mean, when you're, when you, the point of free trials is that everybody who's, you're doing it because you want to gain people's uh, business and you want to gain people's attentions. And, and it makes a lot of sense to, to, in this case, because also there isn't a cost in giving it away. Remember, this is digital media. So uh, if they listen to those streams, maybe those streams where have never gotten listened to. It's not that they're going to stop listening and somewhere where they are paying and then start listening on this service. Or maybe they will, but uh, you know they'll shut off Spotify, and some some artists might see a decrease in revenue for for this trial period. But generally, again, these are these are very small amounts, and I I, I think this is this is one of those things that I felt that I wasn't I wasn't motivated by it enough to even make a comment about it. So mm -hmm. I, I I thought I, to me that the news is in 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 the way it happened, not 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 what what the outcome was. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I'm definitely curious to see how popular Apple Music becomes, but it's yeah, it, it's sort of outside my purview. I'm just not into popular music, so I don't know. Nor, nor am I, and that, that's been a that that's something I'm embarrassed about. But they, but then again, you get to a certain age. One thing I I, I have as a as a as a as a theory uh, about uh, the human condition, it's that when music discovery is a, is a young man young man or young woman's uh, problem. Uh, when you get to a certain age, you know what you like, and you've already probably got it. And so, very few uh, people get are, inter are interested in new music at a certain age. And uh, and so that's why the genres break into a nostalgia, and you know you can get a radio station for every decade uh, because people want to go back to that time when they were young, and that was the formative years where where that music speaks to them. And um, by the way, the interesting thing is that uh, there wasn't such a thing in the 1960s because the industry was so new and there wasn't um, the, the idea of popular music was just recently created. So the nostalgia would have been for jazz or for for uh, for that sort of music that the 1920s, I uh, forget the names of some of those uh, types of music then, but um and it wasn't recorded, and so people weren't going to go back to 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 try to relive that time with, with through music. So, it's a very much a phenomenon of the 20th century. I love one thing about the music event or the music part of the event that that I think didn't maybe rise high enough in consciousness was that video they showed where they they narrated through imagery the how music changed over the years. And I think they missed a little bit with that video because it wasn't narrated. They just had images only. But the, the way you, you could read that narration is like, if you go back in history, ever since music became a recorded product, 
it's changed not just in the form of the medium or the the media that was used to capture it from from vinyl to to tape to CD, but also because of those at that time the music the way in my language would be uh, was hired for different things. The you know the the first record players were were hired to play music in the in the living room to the whole family and you would probably probably have a very few records and maybe you would actually dance to them um in a formal way and and so over time you see how music became a different thing and and with when it became concentrated enough and and portable enough so that you could carry 500 songs or 1000 songs in your pocket then it became yet another thing and and when it became something you 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 could get on the internet through a stream, it, it became yet another thing. So what you, nobody would have thought in the 1960s, I would have these wearable headphones and I would go running with, with, with them to, to, and use music as a way to, to, uh, to motivate myself through my workout. Uh, or I would use these at work to, to, uh, to isolate myself from, from, from the noise in the background. Or, or, or I, would, I would wear these on a, on a commute. That use case, those types of uses for music emerged only because of the technology that was available at that time. And so in some ways what they're saying is that we as Apple, we made one of those eras happen and now we're going to move to another era and we're going to make this happen for, the, for not just the consumer but also for the musician. And, and so this whole story I think is wonderful because it's about the evolution of music, the evolution of how music was consumed and what purpose it had and meaning it had in people's lives. And to the chagrin of many, uh, many people in the industry, it seems as if music has been, has been devalued over time. Has, once we've had so much of it and it's so easy to obtain and, and it, we can carry so much of it in, in our pockets that it's, you know, we've traded analog dollars for digital pennies uh, and, or, or digital dimes and then, and then streaming pennies. But so that's the, that's the sort of the 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the negative spin on it. But the positive spin is actually we consume more music than ever. We're surrounded by it. We have access to it. We 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 can sample. We can try new things. And so when when if you were to take the positive spin on it, and Apple will say the 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 conversation to the artist is that hey, let us help you. Uh, surface this. Let us help you actually take advantage of technology that helps helps you uh, uh, continue in your craft. And, and for the consumer, the same the, the same thing is like let's find music that that you wouldn't have ever found before. That is that is so inspiring or delightful, and, and that really does improve your life. So so that's that's why Apple's in the music business. They come in and say we're not here to figure out a new monetization strategy. We're here to actually make sure that music survives, that music is, is continuing to be an important part of life. I, again, I sound like, like a, a pitchman for, for, the, for beats, but the idea is, 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 is that I've thought about this for years and years when I was thinking about where's music going to end up being? What, 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 is, what is the job to be done? Music is hard to do. And looking through history, you realize that that job changes and that you've got to change along with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the idea that Apple should have and I've seen some people speculate, you know, that that hey, why does Apple why is Apple even bothering with this at all? They don't need to do music. They don't need to be this involved, right? They they've, you know, you can you can 
why not just let Spotify and Pandora handle it all? They've got great iOS apps. You can play them from any of your Apple devices. Why does Apple even need to do this? And I think it's because, I think it's what you said. I think it's because they want to, because they really think music is part of what they want their company to be. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation once I had with uh, someone at Pixar. And I said, why don't you guys go into doing TV? Because you've got these great storytelling techniques and tools and things like that. Why don't you... They make shorts and movies and nothing in between. And they were like... The answer was, because we love movies. And I had no way to... (laughs) I I, I, I was taken aback. I was like... Oh yeah, of course. You know, it's it's here. I am thinking like a technician, or I'm trying to segment the world by what is possible, and and at the end, the decision is like, no, we just love stuff, and that's why we do things. And if we don't, if we did things that we didn't love, then we wouldn't it wouldn't be good at all. And so the formula of Pixar isn't just like we know how to turn the crank. It's like we really are passionate, and the passion is is key. And so in this case, it's I think it's the same thing. I mean, why is Apple in in anything? Why shouldn't they just leave leave payments to someone else? Why should they be be trying to make better photographs? Why should they be trying to make better, uh, uh, you know, even movies with iMovie, and even though nobody's using it, uh, or why isn't you know why are they doing iWork at all? Isn't that stupid? You know why why get into that and kill it, kill it? Every time I hear is like shut it down, shut down Apple TV. It's a failure. Shut down this and that. And I I always think that look they didn't get into it just for that purpose to sort of make money or to become a success by your your definition of it they probably do it because they think it's far part of their fiber and it's it's something that they feel that that will complete them or or you know just and i don't want to make it seem like you know there's some kind of an artistic entity but it, but when you when they ask artists this question is like why did you paint this thing and not show it to anybody he said well i had to get it out i had to get it out and i don't care if anybody sees it um, in some ways, you ought to think about business this way because this is this is the 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 this is the as a sort of uh, antithesis of an analytic approach is actually one of being entirely uh, uh, empathy based and so the, the, but but that empathy allows you to to create greatness and it may lead you to to that one great business as well but it doesn't happen through a deliberate act it happens through a discovery act and so this is the this is why when they make choices that are based on these uh, these uh these instincts uh and and, and people say well it it's not economical or it doesn't make sense or the, 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 they're stepping on toes and things like that at one on one hand on apple that that's that's the narrative on the other hand on google nobody complains that they get into all kinds of crazy moonshots uh, and they all applaud, you know, and, and if, if, if Apple, however, even slightly veers off of what is thought to be the well-trodden path, then then people, uh, you know, jump up with criticism and, and, oh, this is the end of Apple. This is the, obviously this is not their forte. They should not be in this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, hey, uh, it, it's it's some people do R and D, some people do moonshots, and Apple just wants to do wants to in in you know indulge some ideas about what they think is important or education, for example. Why are they in education? Why are they getting into healthcare? Why are they getting into fitness tracking? Are these all money making opportunities? Someday, but you know, I I don't see a way I could put that on the spreadsheet. And I don't care either. It's about really doing things which they think stitch together into a fiber that holds up the whole thing. And that's that's the business of Apple. I think that's not 
And maybe that is a new business of Apple because in, in, in Steve Jobs' time, there would have been more, there would have been a little bit less diverse, diversification. But it, it's still, to me, this is, this is because the, the fiber is so much broader and, 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 and there needs to be so much more to support billions of, or potential billions of users. I think fundamental to the culture of Apple, the corporate culture, and it definitely started with Steve Jobs without question, and it was deliberate and continues to have unforeseen consequences and allows Apple to do things you may not, you know, 10 years from now that we wouldn't have predicted today, is the fact that they don't do uh, a P&L for each product or division or yeah. well, however you want to talk about it, that they're not set up as a, as a they don't have divisions within the company. They're, they're completely functionally organized. In fact, they're more functionally organized than than even before with Steve Jobs, where where Johnny Ives' team took over design of everything, not just hardware design, but that with the forestall ouster and taking over all of software design, that there weren't separate, you know, there wasn't one team right. doing iOS design. They that, created a new function with design that's really deep and exactly right. And this is something I've been, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's one of the mo most under... Uh, under understood aspects of the, the 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 Apple algorithm, which is that they 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 essentially said no to to uh, to a divisional organization, which which uh, see here's the narrative I have on it, which is that it, it, that's fine for small companies. In fact, if you're a startup, you are by default a functional organization. It, it makes sense that you're going to have a somebody. You usually uh, a person is a function, and that's it. Right. There's not that many of you. But as you grow, it makes sense. People think it's logical now. Okay, now we have to divide according to where the money comes from. So if if you know if we've got a product, okay, I'm going to put somebody in charge of that product. I'm going to put somebody in if if it's in fact geographical because your sales structure is that way. Then you do geographical segments, or or something like that, and then you organize according to whatever means you decide the money comes in. Uh, and and that's the thing is that the money starts to lead your thinking. And, and, and optimization becomes the, the, the rule of the day. It's like, how can I hold that person responsible to do the best thing for that, for that particular flow of money that's coming in to optimize it? And so, and so that's how divisional organizations uh, uh, evolved. And, and in fact, General Motors was probably the pioneer in that area back at, uh, you know, 100 years ago or so. Or so uh, so th this idea of, of divisional uh, logic uh, is 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 pervasive in the world, and and it, it it also makes sense when you're managing people and thousands and thousands of people. You want to be able to create the incentives for them to align according to certain goals, and and so the pyramid of that division is is set up so that everybody knows what the target is, and therefore their their paycheck is is tied to that in some way. Uh, and and so people then know what they're what you don't need to tell them every day what to do. They'll have that in their incentives built in, but in, and that doesn't work for an organization where which is like Apple, which is functional because you're not attached to a product. You might be one day, but not the other. And then and then you you're, you're sort of you, you're never even part of the P and L uh, logic is that you 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 uh, you report some of that data and people know how things are going and. And so there's a communication that happens through the knowledge of what's happening, right? And and so, bottom line is that Apple's 
a lack of a PNL, a structure means that people within the organization, will, you'll have a hard time motivating them. You'll have a hard time figuring out what their responsibilities are, figuring out how they can navigate their own personal careers so that they can they can maybe optimize their own career because the signal of pricing uh, and the signal of profit was used to guide you and uh, or would guide you if you were in a divisional organization. So what we have to be impressed by is how actually difficult it is to, to do what Apple is doing because it actually makes running that business really, really hard. And in fact, it may cause some people to just say, I quit. I, this doesn't. I can't. I can't make sense of it. I can't progress in my career because of this, and so there's a lot of heartache that comes with it, and uh, there's a lot of chaos that comes with it, and so this is why every company that gets grows up beyond a certain stage abandons this logic. And here's Apple, which is now I don't know how many fifty thousand or more uh, people is is still able to c- continue in that way. To really, it's hard. It the, it's hard to put a headcount on Apple. Yeah. Unless you separate, of the, yeah. separate yeah. the retail out from yeah, it. But I think you might be right that it's probably 50 or 60 now. It's it's yeah. explosively grown. Non-retail yeah. has grown tremendously in the last five years. Yeah, it was. I think it was Don Melton that pointed this out to me. He said, that, you know, Apple's the largest functional organization outside of the U.S. Army. Um, and maybe other foreign armies. But the idea is that – and then you, I said, oh, and that, that – when he said that, my head went like pop because I said <laughs> – Holy cow, that's exactly why armies are the way they are. I mean, the armies are the way they are. They're actually uh, organized the way they are because they need, they, they need to be you know, thrown at a target. They're thrown at a mission, and they have to execute on that mission. But they're very inefficient in terms of you know, trying to do a blend of things. And often, even when you go into, the, into that mission, it's like it's chaos. It's like crazy you know, incompetencies emerge. And then you realize that, oh, okay, that's why we have war games, to simulate them and to sort of make sure that things run effectively and so on. And so you know, I, I got into this whole train of thought about whether, uh, what would happen if the U.S. Army was divisional. Then you would have the head of, you know, the head of certain types of missions. So you would say, we're going to have Air Force, Marines, and Army. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have a guy in, head of, in charge of uh, attacks in the Middle East. And we're going to have a, a guy in charge of maybe, you know, we'll do it geographically, Latin America. And the, the head of Latin America would have under him, you know, Army, Air Force, and, and, and Marines. But the problem is that that person would gain so much power, then, then they would start, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would kind of have these debates around the big table and say, you know, you know, Middle East is much more important. I ought to get more resources. Uh, so, so, so why don't you, you know, put 80% of the budget in the Middle East this year, Mr. President, and, and, and you know, nobody cares about Latin America. All they're doing is, is, is busting drug gangs, you know. I got a real fight here to fight. So, so give me more money. So then he would get into that. And then so one, one general who ran that region would suddenly have so much more power than the other generals. He, he could actually probably run, you know, uh, do run his own empire, run his own, uh, make 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 so many decisions that he would become like uh, the king of the Middle East. In fact, MacArthur was like that in Japan. That he had so much authority in Japan after the war that he wrote their constitution for them practically, and he was a general. And, and so that was a, a special situation. But when you think about it that way, that this is this this uh, this idea of people who have uh, under them an empire. 
this is the politics that this is the type of politics that that drives organizations into all this all this paralysis all of this mismanagement and all of this running off a cliff and stupidity that we observe and and so because someone has that power structure in them you can imagine this in microsoft's world you know well the windows guys are really powerful and the office guys are really powerful and they need all the resources because they've earned them and so and so it goes but when you take that away you depoliticize an organization so you especially with the military you've got to be depoliticized a politicized military turns into a uh, an object of 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 coup and uh in and, and yeah. This is why you have Republican guards and things like that, which are politicized militaries, which often end up really controlling the, the state. And in a democracy, that's, that's that's unacceptable. And for that reason, the militaries and democracies are the way they are. Yeah. And and this is you know that's a long narrative, but I I, I sorry about well, that. and not and not to go too deep down the hist- historical yeah. uh, rabbit hole, but that's why Harry Truman fired. General McCarthy. Exactly. I mean, which Harry was, Truman. That's one of those things where I grew up and I heard the story and I thought, well, I guess that's the sort of thing that happens. But then, like the the older I get and the more perspective I get on it, it was sort of a bombshell, you know, to the U.S. public who who viewed viewed him as a you know as he a, heroic, a hero. Vic, heroic he was a, a wartime hero. He had, he not only had uh, beaten Japan, but he also he was, had beaten Korea right. and 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 so or North North Korea and, and, and he he getting fired. I mean, so many people were upset, but the, he became too political, political, and that was unacceptable in a democracy. And that that to me was uh, uh, was a great story to tell, and 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 I think that's where you got to watch out. This is the day to day. Fears and worries that a that a guy like Tim Cook has to deal with. It's it's he's got to worry about, and I th- you know the Forstall story I think had a lot to do with whether that general became too political and didn't stick to his functional role. Uh, in that case, uh, he had to be sacrificed, even though everybody loved him. Uh, so you know it's the same story. You know I think of him as the Truman uh, of, of of Apple. Yeah, uh, and as the more time is gained from that, the less. Oh, not Truman. Sorry, McCarthy. Right, I meant, right. Sorry. I, I, exactly. But I thought you meant Cook as the Truman, which is a, true. Yeah, Cook is the Truman, right. and and Forstall was was McCarthy. Right. No, that's uh, the more I see it though. It's it's not just. I, I at first I viewed it as sort of a petty, more of a petty disagreement between a few individuals. And I think that there's something to that angle. Um, but I feel like long-term strategically, it was about making sure that the institution of the whole company was was truly more functional. Whereas I feel like under Steve Jobs, a lot of the functional nature of Apple came down to Jobs' singular role in the company. Not, yeah. not to say that the company depended on him. And couldn't, you know, that he was a, a cornerstone that the company couldn't do without. I think we're seeing that that's not true. But I think that the functional nature of the company flew through him. Yeah. And yeah, no, you're, you're right. There's subtle differences. We generalize and we use metaphor and we use, uh, we use allegory. But it, the, the truth is, is far more complex. And so I don't want to be, I, 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 I don't want to make it seem like it's so clear cut uh, that, that, you know, this is, this tells the story, but I th- it's only illustrative. For example, just to, as a, as an anomaly, as a counterpoint to, to the functional thing, there's, there's the Eddie Q's organization because Eddie Q, uh, I see it as an empire because he's got under him uh, services now called, and includes uh, all the stores. It includes iWork. It includes the um, uh, the new um, it includes Apple TV. It, it includes uh, uh, 
products that are hardware, software, and services. And that is, that is it could, you know, if you could spin off to EDIQ, you know, it would be a huge business. <laughs> it would be a business bigger than Amazon, in my opinion. Uh, I could hang and probably dig up some numbers that would show that 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 uh, Edicure's organization uh, by itself, uh, you know, would be valued by the market far with a with a good chunk of multiple would be would be far in excess than what it is inside Apple. But that, of course, that's not going to happen. The point is, though, that is an exception to rule, and and there is a good reason for that because there is this kind of like, what do you do with these pieces problem, and so and so in some ways they're they're. They're put under him, and so if it happens, there's a reorg. Uh, do, I would be surprised because something may just get out of control there. I don't know. I'm not not prejudicing. Hopefully, I here. I think what's what's so funny with Apple today, it would be it, it would be almost impossible to reorganize the company. I think what they could do is is there could be like uh, departures. Individuals could depart, maybe just. Uh, simply to enjoy their retirement, enjoy the, you know, the, the wealth that they've accumulated. Um, or it could be another dispute arises where there's a personality conflict between two senior vice presidents who need to be working together and can't get along. But I, I to me, it would just be, it, it's almost more like running like, like sports, you know, like pick any sport, you know, like you, if you want to talk about soccer, like, well, we're going to have to, change goalkeepers yeah it's but it's still right. the same I, position you're not really yeah, yeah. redefining you know, I, the, I, the structure. I think you're, you're you're absolutely you're saying it right i i i just i i literally i uh on the spot thought of the, the reorg idea and i don't I, I i on reflection i think you're right it's not going to be what we think of as a reorg it might just be that that maybe they'll carve maybe they could do something with with services that's going to grow to such an extent that they um, may uh, may create that as a separate thing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just being completely speculative. Yeah. Uh, let me take another break here. We'll take a deep breath and uh, I'll thank our second sponsor. And it's another longtime friend of the show, our good friends at Fracture. It is sad. Sad. I honestly think it is that so many of our photos that we take today, people, everybody, almost everybody I know takes more photographs today than they ever have before in their lives. And it's only it's only becoming more prevalent. And it's easy to see why. It's because we all have really good cameras with us all the time, like two or three seconds away from being ready to snap a photo. Um, and yet so many of the photos that we take uh, never really leave the devices that, that we view them on. They're just digital things that we see on digital devices when we look for them. Uh, and I think it's actually true. I think it's even true for me personally as somebody who uses Fracture and has Fracture prints and, and, and you know, talks about them all the time here, that I've actually got le fewer printed photos now when I take more photos than I did 10, 11, 12 years ago when... Uh, I used to shoot on film and had to have prints of everything made. There's something magical about a printed photograph when it's something that means something to you. That's where Fracture steps in. Fracture prints your photos directly on pure glass. You pick your favorite photos that you've, that you've taken. You send them to Fracture, and the prints come back to you printed directly on glass, not a piece of paper attached to glass. They just print right on the glass. I don't know what kind of voodoo they use to do it, but it looks great. The prints come back to you. They've got a foam back right on the glass that's ready to mount on the wall. 
uh, or ready to be used. It's this ingenious, ingenious packaging that you can use to mount it on a wall or to prop it up on a shelf or your desk or uh, the mantle or wherever you want to put it up uh, right out of the box. So you don't need to put them in a frame. You don't need to buy a separate frame. The picture itself is all you need to mount it on the wall, hang it up, uh, really looks great and it gives your photos the analog beauty that they deserve uh, so go check them out take some photos uh, or take some of your recent photos pick a few that are your favorites go to uh, fractureme.com fractureme.com that's their website uh, and use the code daring fireball use that code and you'll get 15% off your first order from Fracture. The prices are already great, but you can save 15% using the code Daring Fireball. So my, my thanks to Fracture. So uh, speaking about not putting everything off in its own P&L, profit and loss, and looking at things you know functionally, you, you wrote a recent uh, piece on a Simco about maps and the sort of... Um, well, more like, like one factor. How much does it cost to run a top-notch mapping service per year? And you came to the conclusion that it costs about $2 billion a year? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it used to be one, but it's closer to two now. And I think that, and I got that figure by looking at the financials that, uh, that Nokia was reporting for its HERE product, uh, or uh, HERE division, which was an acquisition uh, back in 2007, actually the year the iPhone launched, Nokia spent $7 billion or euros, I forget, on the acquisition of Navtech, which was at the time probably the best map service in the world. And I mean that because I was using maps in 2005 and six on a mobile device, um, uh, a phone, uh, back in the pre-iPhone dark ages. And... Um, I remember using Google Maps back then, and it was horrifically bad. I think Google Google Maps was um, laughably bad compared to paid services or or things you could purchase by you could download the entire maps. Like you know, remember Tom Tom and and sure uh, those you know Garmin. Those guys had a down or they had a an embedded maps in in their in their uh, hardware. Or if you had an in-car system like uh, like you would have with a high-end car back in the day, you would pay three, four thousand dollars for the uh, onboard navigation, which was a DVD usually. That was in, you know that was upgradable nope, if you paid. That's exactly. I, I we bought the car that we have. Uh, we bought in two thousand six. Still driving yeah. it. Uh, and I think we turned down. It was a four thousand dollar upgrade to get inboard navigation. Right. <laughs> which in <laughs> hindsight for there were a couple of years there where my wife gave me a hard time about that and in hindsight really looks like a, a very good decision and at the time you could get a handheld uh navigator uh, and you, or you could get like very rarely and the, these were only on some nokia devices that you could get usually it was an sd card that had maps data for the region you were in and you could pop that in very few actually none i think were directly over the air. Google started offering over the air, but again, it was horrible. And I remember using it in, in those years. I was in, uh, I was in Boston. I was actually working at Nokia's offices over in, uh, uh, by 128. And I remember using it every, every afternoon going home. I would 
open it up on a, a Nokia a sort of BlackBerry style phone and I would have this tiny square screen and I would pop in uh, through the through the online uh, through uh, sorry through through the network at the time, which would have been probably two G or two and a half G, and I would get to see my route home, and I would look for the traffic data because there, there was that was that was really the only value for me is like how bad was the traffic when I would have, when I would drive home, but that was it. That was no really discovering where to go eat or anything like that. That was maps based. So at that time, at that time. Um, uh, app, uh, you know, Nokia thought we've got to spend seven billion dollars on maps. And the the thing about app, Nokia uh, throughout the years I was there is that they're really, really forward thinking. Uh, they thought about smartphones ten years before anybody else did. They thought about maps ten years before they got good enough. And if anything, they just were too early on everything. Uh, and and didn't focus on the things that needed to be improved. Rather, they said, "Okay, we buy the assets or we commit to the strategy," and they 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 thought that was enough. Uh, they didn't have the ability to really really get their uh, get the things sorted out. So 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 long story short, so so they buy Naftec for for billions of dollars. Uh, and then you, they would report their revenues and they would report their costs. So from that, we could work out just how much they were spending to maintain that $7 billion asset, to maintain the data in it. And of course, nowadays, people would say that here, Maps is not as good. By the way, here, the Maps business did have revenues for them because they were selling these data sets to the car makers. So they were selling them to Mercedes and Porsche and whoever to put on the, those DVDs in their cars. And to put in the SD cards if you were willing to, you know, buy that service. So Naftex business was a real business. It wasn't an ad-driven business. It wasn't based on on selling devices. It was based on selling the actually hard-earned data. And they had 400 people who every day got into cars to go collect data uh, by driving around. And they would also source data from satellites. They would source data from, I mean, satellite companies. They would source data from uh, geoposition. You know, there's, there was these huge uh, data sets that mostly were not consumer-based, right? These were for companies. And, and so, so this was an amazingly valuable uh, idea that, that maps are going to be someday very important in mobile. And that maps, therefore, the Nokia thought would, by owning that asset, and there weren't very many others, uh, you, you, in fact, they were coming with the baggage of hardware like, like Garmin and TomTom. And so instead they said, no, this is a pure, pure asset. We're going to buy it and we're going to be the best map service in the world. And at that time, I would argue, yes, they were. Google was a joke. Uh, and and the, the funny thing to me was a few years later when finally Apple gets into the maps business, people say that their maps are a joke. And I, I just remembered Google. I didn't, I didn't think that uh, that was a relevant argument because I remember that Google got better. So the only question in my mind was not, are they any good at the launch? Of course, they're not good at the launch. They're just getting started on something that people have been doing for 20 years. And Google itself had been doing for seven years or six years. And of course, Google had a six-year lead. And of course, they're going to be better. So let's look at it six years from now. And so, and so, uh, and I knew that they would have to spend the kind of money that 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 uh, just to maintain the here maps service or NAFTA cost a billion dollars a year. So, in order to obtain the depth of knowledge that that to catch up 
you'd have to be spending more than that. Yeah. Now, no one's confirmed or denied the two billion figure, but I, I you know, I, I would say that's credible. Uh, the 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 amount of effort going in is at that level, yeah. and uh, and so that's how I got that number. I, I will put a link to to the piece in the show notes. I know I often say that and I forget to, but I've already got it in my notes, so it'll be there. But you make a good case for why it's. I think in the ballpark, it's got to be pretty close, and there is a lot. There's just a lot of ongoing legwork to run a modern mapping service. I mean, you need those drivers out on the streets taking the pictures yeah. of the stores and I'll give you I'll give you another example and this is from a friend of mine who I met at, at uh, actually at uh, last I met was at Ul you, you know uh, Paul Campbell's show right. in uh, in Ireland and uh, and he ran a service in Prague he was American he ran a service in Prague Germany oh so Prague Czech Republic sorry uh, where where uh, he uh, would uh, uh, pay uh, college students to walk around the city and make notes about the opening times of every restaurant, every place you could walk, bar, everything you could walk into. So the address, the, the and the and the and the and the, the details about you know what was on the on the door that uh, that that gave you information that was about that establishment. And so what he he would aggregate that data and overlay it on public open source maps and provide that as a tourist. Uh, uh, Atlas. So, so he would uh, let you download. So, so you would download this and not pay roaming charges. So, may, imagine you're visiting from Italy to Prague, and you're an Italian, and you you get the the map of Prague from him, and allow gives you this level of detail. Now, the reason he was in business is because Google Maps would have cost you a lot in roaming fees. So, in Europe, it made sense that you could do, you could do every city this way. But then, the real amazing story he told me was that. Google came to him and said, why don't you just uh, license this, all this data to us? They didn't have it. Google didn't have this data. Hmm. So, so he did a deal with Google where he's, you know, and he felt he had, he had been wronged in it because they offered him, like, we'll just put your name down at the bottom of each page. We won't pay you anything. We'll put your name down at the bottom. And so that'll be a link. So you're going to get a lot of business from, from being exposed via, via Google Maps. And it turned out that that wasn't worth very much. Uh, so he felt, you know, that that was a bad deal, and he got out of it later. But, 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 the, you know, but the idea is then, then that Google itself, in order to uh, to to get this information, does all kinds of deals, right? It either sends people on its own, or in this case, through another person who did all this work, you know, has college students doing because college students are fairly cheap, and they're going around by foot anyway, walking around the city, thinking they're you know they're they're, they're discovering the world. And by the way, here you're going to be paid a couple of dollars if you if you if you jot down this data every time you pass a, a doorway and so this this model of really low-level crowdsourcing data is truly labor-intensive and it ends up costing a lot of money and then cleaning it up and so and sending it all to India to have it to have it uh, uh, rationalized and 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 fixed and all that stuff so there's a huge amount of effort there as well and then they then they go off and, and, and do 3d then they go off and do do underground and internal maps and then, you know, on and on it goes. The demands of these maps are suddenly we want to have every single thing. We want flyovers. We want, uh, we, we want uh, uh, you know, vector maps. We don't, we're yeah. not happy with bitmaps, right? So all of that adds a huge amount of cost. And, and, uh, and so if this is the game, uh, you wonder then why are they doing it? Because uh, you've got to make the money back somehow. And, and it gets tough to uh, understand a logic 
that that uh, that that exist besides the ones we see now, which are basically Google Maps advertising based and Apple essentially saying that our devices are worth it. And uh, and so I asked the question, uh, what else can we expect for business models as far as maps are concerned into the future? And I lead to, you know, thinking about transportation and, and, and autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Well, it's part of your analysis, and I love this. I never really thought about it, but if you if you know, starting with the idea that it takes about two billion dollars per year to maintain a modern mapping service, that you can work out rough estimates of how many users the major mapping services have, and then you can divide and figure out what does it cost per user per year. And your your estimates, you come out with uh, so Google Maps is the leading map service in in the world. Costs about cost them about two dollars per user per year. So to be profitable, now I'm I'm reading right from your post, Google would need to find ad revenues of two dollars per user per year. Uh, with Apple, with fewer users, but with a majority of iOS users, um, by all accounts, their Apple is spending about six seven dollars a year per user per year. And to make to justify that, they really just need to you know, find six or seven dollars of value in the iPads and iPhones that people are buying, which I, you know, as you said, certainly seems reasonable. And then you get to Nokia here and (laughs) it's costing them $66 per year per user because they've only got 30 million users at this point. And you right. can, if you were to bundle it with 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 the old Nokia, I mean Microsoft Nokia, because actually now they exist without any users. So they're having what they're doing is they licensed it to Microsoft. So Microsoft is probably only paying Nokia, you know, a couple of dollars, like they would, let's say, for 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 uh, a, let's say a blend between Apple and Google, like some let's say five bucks a year for per user, and that just doesn't cover their costs. So they'd have to find other revenue. And they do, like I said, they always been selling to to car makers, uh, but that makes it you know that's why the car in that that's why the car guys are selling, uh, you know asking four thousand uh, dollars. That you know they're probably paying uh, the the data vendor like three four hundred dollars per. You know their markups are huge and they're very inefficient, but but that that's the that's per vehicle pricing. It's probably in the hundreds of dollars. But again, long now it's up for sale and it's still losing money as it is, right? And and the question, I, I you know this is why people would ask me why doesn't why doesn't Apple buy buy uh, Nokia's here? And I you know I would say well look it's up for sale for three billion dollars and then there's like there's no deal yet, but. But somebody supposedly is bidding three billion dollars on something that a few years ago cost seven billion dollars, and suddenly we're saying is absolutely a hygiene factor as far as platforms are concerned. If you don't have this, you're 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 a non-player, and Apple is desperate, and so on and so on. All of these things make no sense when you look at the when you follow the money and you say, here's somebody could just buy the third best Apple, you know, the third best mapping system, and probably uh, you know having the longest legacy actually, uh, and no one wants it. Why is that? Why these things don't make sense to to you know when you reconcile the dollars and you reconcile against the supposed value and in in uh, in that what is it the the invaluable nature of maps as a strategic asset and so I, I I point out that well the guys who are in it already have already decided and committed to this strategy and they're putting their own people to work on it and this would not help them very much 
So the only question is, would there be a third party that wants to get into this business? But they have to discover a business model. That's the question. If Uber, and Uber is one of the candidates that's being put forward, uh, maybe it's, it's not true, but I, I, the rumors say that Uber is interested, or the car makers as a group would go and buy this mapping thing that's up for grabs, but they would have to come up with how do we make sure we're profitable to burning two, uh, up to a $2 billion a year to keep the service uh, 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 competitive, and, and, and the answer would have to be that they have to get into some way of monetizing autonomies, autonomous vehicles, yeah. and, and I, I both have an interest in that. Yeah, because it, kills, it can kill a bunch of birds, maybe more than two birds with one stone, where the autonomous vehicles, and you see, you know, it's no secret that, that Uber is getting into package delivery um, and stuff like that. And that Amazon, you know, it's it, it, a whole bunch of different companies are converging on the same idea. And that Amazon is investigating new ways to deliver packages to people that without going through UPS uh, or something like oh, that. Right. I actually had an uncomfortable conversation with my UPS guy the other day where uh, there was a package from Amazon that was left at our door. And then the UPS guy came and rang the doorbell and had another one. And that's very unlike UPS. UPS is usually very, very efficient at bundling two things. You know, if you have two different orders coming that they come in at one time. Uh, and, you know, and he mentioned, you know, that I, he said he thought I wasn't home because that, other, you know, that Amazon package had already been left there by somebody else at my front door. Uh, clearly not delivered by UPS. But anyway, all these things, people getting driven around and not owning cars, this whole idea that if you live in an urban environment, you you can use Uber instead of owning a car and you actually save money. Uh, you can save a lot of money compared to the, the monthly cost of owning a car. Um, and combine that with the fact that these cars could do the work of taking the pictures and stuff like that as they drive around the area. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the thing. And in fact, uh, this professor at NYU Galloway, um, Scott Galloway. Yeah, and, great. And, you know, he great guy. And he, you, you should probably interview him. And yeah. Probably, yeah. He's on my list. Of knowledge. And if, you know, he, he points out that that Uber is potentially disruptive to, to Amazon, because when you break Amazon down, besides having a discovery engine for, for you know, through the website, it's really a massive operations uh, uh, and, and distribution center. And in fact, that's where a lot of their money goes. They're, a lot of their, their capex or capital expenses are in setting up distribution centers globally. And they're very expensive and they're somewhat even robotic. Uh, they have robots and stuff in, in, in them. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a high cost thing. And they're doing it because really that's, that's how they get the growth they need. You know, they have to get these packages uh, in, to, to from uh, a lot of points to a lot of points. And the thing is that that's exactly what Uber does. Now, it doesn't have the storefront, but it's actually probably easier for them to do a storefront than, than, uh, than, uh, than it would be to build the infrastructure that, that they're disrupting. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think Uber is one of the most disruptive ideas ever. Um, and, and so that's why, you know, they would come to the maps question with a different set of priorities, not so much about monetizing them the way the other two are doing it, but rather that saying, hey, you know, this is actually exactly in the direction we want to go. We want to be a logistics company. We want to be a transportation company. We want to be a, uh, a potentially even a vehicle company. And so, and so all of that, and, and the maps enables that. Yeah, make and of course, the car makers are, in, you know, are in it for the same obvious 
reasons that they've always been. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me intuitively that if somebody else were going to start, you know, like let's just say Uber to be a third major maps company, um, that they would have a third different revenue model, right? So there's Google that's doing it with advertising and just sort of we'll we'll put our maps anywhere and everywhere we can and get the most people we possibly can and we're going to make that money back by advertising and we really only need to sell a few dollars in ads per user per year to make this to make this work. There's the Apple model which is we're going to use this as a value add to our premium products and I don't feel like anybody is going to catch Google or Apple in either of those ways soon. And so it makes sense to me that if somebody's going to be a strong number 3 uh, that it would be with an entirely different model like Uber. Yeah, and that, that's where I'm saying by the title is like where maps are going, is where where in a, in a, in the sense of obtaining value from transportation. By the way, it's possible that both Apple and Google also have that in mind because they're going to potentially enable vehicles either of their own design or or licensing it for that. And and uh, and the, the other thing that I found fascinating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it was a wonderful expose which said that uh, really the key to, to the autonomous vehicle, the self-driving cars that Google is, is now field testing, is not that they have this amazing algorithm that it recognizes the world and is able to act as if we do in terms of, of avoiding, uh, avoiding uh, uh, an accident, but rather that they compare what they see with what is stored. And what is stored is essentially hyper, hyper high-resolution map of the street so imagine that the vehicles drive over the same spot many times they always take a picture and then they upload it and that is what's stored as the this is the world the, the way it looks now compare what that the way the world looks with what you're seeing at this moment if they don't match then there's an obstacle so that's the way they determine whether there's an obstacle in the way because there is this kind of uh, uh comparison being done rather than saying oh i see this blob i'm going to use my artificial intelligence to determine if the blob is a person or an animal or a, you know a, a a boulder it's really about this kind of uh, differential they, they're able to do so it's it's really much more brute force than 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 we think um, uh, and probably more effective by the way and, and less error prone uh, than than than, uh, than this idea of really machine learning uh, about driving and and so it's very data driven and that bo the boils it boils down to therefore really having super high hyper accurate maps like down to the centimeter in terms of resolution rather than what we see now, which is down to the meter uh, uh, and, and, and also uh, not just street view. Imagine street view with the ability to, to, to see every, cent every square centimeter uh, of the world as you're moving along at 60 frames a second. And, and so you're doing that comparison continuously and therefore you're able to uh, really have that autonomous uh, machine. And, and, and this is why also it's very difficult to, the, 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 one of the side effects is that they, unless you have a map of the inside of a, of a, let's say an inside of a parking garage, the, the, the car cannot go there. The car can only go in places that have been pre-mapped and pre-visualized. And so that's why maps are so important to autonomous vehicles. It's because the algorithms depend on having a very hyper-accurate view of the world. And so if either, if either three of these three contenders, right, uh, Google, uh, Apple, and Uber, who wanted, want to become uh, potentially, again, there's a lot of hypothesis here, 
potentially suppliers of information or, or of transportation services, then you get into this whole question of how good are your maps? They have to control the maps. And in fact, maps are not good enough, so they can't just go, oh, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just get somebody to do it for us. No, we've got to have to figure this out. So, so that's why I think part of these vans you see that Apple drives around and we think of them as being, well, they're just doing Street View. Well, Street View is the, is the baby version of what, what's going to be necessary if you're going to have autonomous vehicles. That's a great point. Let's keep going on this. But before we do, I want to thank our third and final sponsor, and it's our good friends at Casper. Casper makes obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. Uh, just the right sink, just the right bounce. They combine two technologies uh, to make one mattress. You don't have to go there and pick like, oh, do you want mattress A or mattress B, mattress C? You just pick a size and all their mattresses have the same exact feel to them using two technologies, latex foam and memory foam. Uh, put together with just the right mix of how much of each style to make a perfect mattress. Uh, now, again, buying a mattress, all this stuff you can buy online sounds crazy. Well, how, why in the world would you buy a mattress online if you can't feel it, can't try it? Uh, here's the thing. They have a risk-free trial and return policy. You try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days, and that's with free delivery and painless free return. So 99 days into it, you don't like it. You think this is this is not a this was not a good mattress. You just go to their website and say, you know, set up a thing. They'll come pick up the mattress, take it out of there. Um, that's how confident though they are in the mattress. Now, when they first started sponsoring the show, I forget what the uh, free trial period was, but it was less than 100 days, and they extended it to 100 days because that they've had so few returns because people buy these mattresses and love them. Uh, their mattresses are made in America and the prices, if you've ever, if you shop for a mattress recently, you'll see just how low these prices are. 500 for a twin size mattress, uh, up to 950 for a king size mattress. So under a thousand dollars for a king size mattress, unheard of for a premium mattress. Uh, compare that to the industry averages and it's just outstanding. Uh, how do they deliver them? It's this is part of the amazing part of this is is that by using these uh, foam technologies, latex foam and memory foam, they can vacuum seal these mattresses into a shockingly small box. It's a big box to get delivered. It's probably the biggest package you'll get. You know, if you order one of these, it's probably the biggest package you'll get all year. But it's way smaller than the size of a mattress. And so they have instructions on the box. Uh, they tell you. Take it to the room where you want to have it. Take it to your bedroom and open the box there. You definitely don't want to open it downstairs and then carry it upstairs because then you're stuck lugging a mattress-sized thing. You open it up, and it makes a cool sound as it soaks in the air, and next thing you know, you've got a full-size mattress. Uh, really, really good stuff. I've got one. It's really nice. It's a great mattress. Uh, could not be more convenient. I just found out, I did not know this. I don't live in New York. They've got a thing where if you live in New York City, you can get one same day, I believe. And they actually deliver them. This is how small the boxes are. They get delivered by people on uh, bicycles. That it's So it's a big thing to lug on your back on a bike, but it actually is that, that convenient to uh, ship around. So here's the thing. You can't lose. You don't have to go to six different mattress stores and try six different mattresses and figure out which ones are equivalent between the two and price shop. Just go to casper.com slash the talk show. 
Casper, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash The Talk Show. Figure out what size mattress you want and order it. That's it. Now, use that code, The Talk Show. I think it kicks in as long as you just use the URL. But if you need the code, it's The Talk Show. And you save an additional 50 bucks off the price of any mattress. Uh, so save 50 bucks. They'll know you came from the show, and you'll get a great mattress at a, a truly unbeatable price. Casper.com slash the talk show. So we were talking about maps. I'm not sure if we have more to go on maps, but uh, it it has occurred to me. One thing I've looked at as I've been thinking about it more and more is that I'm slow to the uptake sometimes on on revolutionary companies. Um, and Uber is one of them, where Uber is a company where I've been using them for a while, ever since, especially since they came to Philadelphia. But they've always been, you know, they started in San Francisco. And San Francisco has, well, it's gotten better, and it's because of Uber. But San Francisco, to me, has always had some of the worst taxi cab service of any any city that I visit. Hmm. It, it, it's simply appalling compared to what I'm used to on the East Coast. Um, and so I was a big fan of Uber in San Francisco right from the get-go. Um, but I just, I thought of them simply as a newfangled taxi company and that's it. And I didn't look past that. And it's, it occurred to me that that's exactly how I used to see Amazon. I was a very early adopter of Amazon for buying books, but I saw them as a bookstore. And then people would say, oh, Amazon has ambitions to do a lot more than just books. And I would just roll my eyes and think, whatever. But it's a pretty. It is a pretty cool bookstore. Um, I thought the same thing about Uber until recently. But I see now that I I think that they they sort of are like the inverse of Amazon. Indeed, and, and you know what what's interesting when you think about trying to do this type of analysis of where things. Yeah, you know, I always use some kind of you know biological metaphor. Like I say, you know, it's it's like it's like looking at a baby and saying. That's pretty useless human being. You know. <laughs> it, it just like, can't do anything. I mean, it's like this is a lot of the criticisms we get when not just when new companies are born, but even when new products is, are born from established companies, and we are we're just like eh, it's, it's it's useless. You know, like the Apple Watch or the first iPhone or the first whatever. I mean, yeah, some things Apple does were much more meaningful, but it's like the the logic of it is that. The 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 or rather to say the magic of it is being able to look in the child's eyes and say that there lies you know a human being that's going to live ninety years, that's going to have an amazing life, that's going to change the world and contribute so much to others, and 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 yet and yet that's not what comes in the mind even of the parent. The 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 stranger may just be ambivalent or you know a lot of young people who haven't. Yeah, you you remember when you were when you were a teenager, you didn't think babies nope. were all that great. But w w when you're a, when you're parent age, you kind of really get a soft spot. And then when it's your kid, you're 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 completely irrational about children. But but the point I'm making is that we don't love children because of what they're gonna be necessarily. We don't love our children because they're gonna grow up to be lawyers and doctors or that they're going to help us in our old age. We love them because it's just we love them. And and the thing is that that um, there's this, this, I'd like to propose that we treat um, startups and, 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 and young things in general with the same 
the contemplation of their potential, but also sort of saying, well, they're valuable just because they exist. You know, they're, they're just valuable because somebody took the effort of making it and, 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 you know, that's worth a lot. And, um, yeah, it's coming back to Pixar again, remember in, in Ratatouille and that speech of, um, what was the name of the, the, the critic, um, at the end, he said, you know, not, nothing we do as critics is worth the crummiest product we've ever visited or the crummiest restaurant we've ever eaten at um, because these people work to make it happen and all we do is consume the, the result and, and, and mock it. Uh, so we don't, you know, they deserve a lot more uh, than we do. But he said, you know, the value of the critic, he continues, is in discovering the new. And uh, that's that. That was a beautiful speech, and uh, uh, I wish I would remember who wrote it. But it was almost as if they were speaking to the Ca- tech character's name was Anton how... Ego, portrayed that's by Peter right. O'Toole. I remember right. that hitting home for me too, because I yeah. I clearly was self-aware enough to recognize that that's more or less the, the career that I've carved out for myself. Is you know effectively I'm a critic. A, a pundit on these things and that I do a lot more uh, telling, tell, you know, thinking about whether the work of other people is good or bad or how it could be improved than I do creating it myself. And that, you know, I should remember that and keep that perspective and not never lose sight of the fact that what I say is not more important than the actual work itself. Yeah. Having said that, so I, you know, I want to make sure that, we give we give a lot of credit to those who stick their necks out, but it's it's also important that when you when you look at something and you ask yourself what can it become, that there are helpful hints. Um, one thing you can study with a baby is you can study its parents. I've, often that's a great indicator of what they're going to end up doing or how how well. Not always. I mean, maybe even if you have twenty percent chance, uh, it's better than zero though. Uh, so, so there's, there's that. And also sometimes you study the child and you see how, whether they struggled through life. Uh, and that usually tells you that they will do better than average because they, they actually are learning, uh, um, through experience. And, and so when you see something like an Uber, uh, you, you know, you measure things like, are they flexible? Are they driven? Are they, are they, uh, do they have an ambition, um, and fundamentally, I think the disruptive theory that I've, I'm a big fan of and I'm, I'm a big uh, supporter and advocate of is that it gives you these hints about where things can go. And the thinking uh, of, around uh, 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 the analysis around an object like the Uber is that, you know, they're solving a job and that is to get people from point to point. And that job today has an alternative called a car. And it's really about understanding the substitution power that they have versus something that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, is not seen in the same category. And this is when, when you start to jump across markets and across categories and say, you know, actually this thing has the potential to be a threat to something that's completely unrelated. And that's that, that skill of understanding what it's really 
what's, what it's really trying to do and what the customer, we use the phrase, what, what the customer hires the product to do. And th this is in a way of saying, uh, uh, this is the jobs to be done uh, methodologies, like saying, well, you don't buy a drill, you hmm. buy a hole in the wall. And so if, if and, and, and this has been an observation for many, many decades ago, that that which companies sell isn't what, what their buyers or their customers are buying. So this distinction is important because those the capabilities that the that the seller have the, the has the, the the capability that they say well we can make this but then the other person on the other side who receives the product is saying well what I really need is something else but thanks I'll take this and I'll make it work that's where uh, the combination of those two things plus the opportunity to to shake hands and change money, that's how we make business. And so often these these are separate things. Too many times we, we end up in a situation where we buy a product, not exactly what we want. But but then but then uh, you ask yourself, but that product can evolve and get better because it's getting information from the from the buyer about what's wrong with it, and then and then you know they get pricing signals. You know, they, sounds very very uh, very much like a buzzword, but the idea is simply that. Look, I can't charge much for this thing. Like today, I can't charge four hundred dollars for for Office anymore, and that's a signal to Microsoft to say, "Go do something else." And and if you don't have that signal, you just keep doing it. Uh, so so if you sell to enterprises who are like, "Oh, whatever, I'll keep paying," uh, then then you 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 get dumber. You get dumber and not 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 move on. And so if you have consumer as a customer, then they're going to eventually say. Oh, I'm not going to pay that anymore. I'm going to go off and buy a tablet that that does good enough work instead of a PC, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so, th this is the this is why the conversation happens with the customer. So, anyway, there's a lot of these things we we can we can talk about. But bottom line is that in, when I think about an Uber, I always think about well, what are they really hired to do? And I think what they're hired to do is saying, I want a car outside my door when I whenever I'm ready to go. Uh, and and if I have that that uh, option. Every time, every day, everywhere, then I don't need a car anymore, and that means that I can get rid of my car. And if if I can do a deal with Uber and say, "Hey guys, I don't want to pay pay for this trip every every time I get in the car, but can I just pay up front three hundred dollars, and you guys always show up?" And Uber works it out and says, mm, "Okay, you know, they probably will have some customers that will use it less, and some customers that will use it more, but on average, maybe three hundred dollars a month is a good price." To offer it as a as a as a uh, all you can eat Uber, then suddenly that you know you'll have like Amazon uh, Amazon uh, Prime, and so you you'll be saying you know I want Uber Prime. So Uber Prime is uh, three hundred fifty dollars a month. Maybe in the beginning they're going to charge five hundred dollars a month because some people will pay that and probably they'll have fewer uh, fewer. Uh, Sparse right. users, et cetera, et cetera. So over time, that's going to change. But anyway, they'll do that, and someday, you know, and then what? And then, so Uber is putting in, pulling in all this money, five hundred dollars, and they're saying, and then they have to turn around and hire people to to serve as chauffeurs or or whatever, and and they'll say, uh, you know, maybe we we ought to finance their car buying, maybe we ought to put them on the payroll, maybe we're gonna 
get some autonomous vehicles. We'll have better algorithms for dispatch because we'll know where these people live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these things are going to be information driven. And at that point, though, the, you know, the, the machine just takes over and it just goes, goes, goes rolling and rolling. And, and as far as the entrepreneur is concerned, at every stage of that journey, they're just following in their instincts. They're saying, well, obviously, we got to do this, right? Uh, people are asking for it. Or, uh, hey, I just, uh, some guy, you know, intern runs in the room and say, hey, but how, how, we thought of doing this? This makes a lot of sense. I just ran these numbers. Look at this. And so they'll do it without any kind of great strategy or any kind of big vision or any McKinsey consultant telling them that's what the future is going to be. So they'll do it intuitively. And, and lo and behold, 10 years later, they'll, they'll, they'll have uh, uh, millions of customers paying them billions of dollars a year to provide inf- transportation services. And all those millions of customers will have abandoned owning a car. And Uber will be commissioning more Priuses than anybody else on the planet, probably you know, enough to fill a factory uh, with production. So if they, in that case, why shouldn't Uber just make its own cars? And maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe it'll just simply do a great deal with, with Toyota, and and Toyota will essentially be uh, having one giant customer, uh, or you know, versus millions of small ones. And uh, and so maybe that deal will work for the both yeah. of them, but maybe not. Maybe the you know Uber Uber will say you know Prius isn't the best configuration. We could do a lot better if we if we made our own design, and then they'll hire the best designer out of uh, GM or. Toyota or BMW, and they'll say, we well, go to it. And by the way, we've got manufacturing uh, guys who can help as well. And on it goes, right? So this is why you go from a baby to a mature adult that suddenly is Well, that's the thing the that's occurred to me. And I realize that it's very different if you live in a relatively, or, or like I live in a real urban environment. I live in Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, I go to New York a lot. I go to San Francisco a lot. But if you live anywhere, it's even relatively Uber, where Uber can be a practical service. I mean, obviously, there's, in, especially in the United States, there's many people who live in rural areas where Uber isn't going to make sense, or at least isn't going to make sense for a long time. Um, but it, just take a look at a typical city. Where are most of the cars? By far and away, most of the cars at any moment in any city are parked, right? Which is incredibly inefficient. And it's an enormous part of the pain in the ass of owning a car or even visiting a city with a car is the pain of parking. Uh, yep. So I, but I can, but that's actually good for the auto industry where there's a lot more cars being sold than there are cars being driven at any moment. And the disruption of Uber is let's keep these cars moving. And it's almost like the airline, uh, metaphor you know and you hear that like one of the reasons that southwest is is more successful than most other airlines is that the employees buy into the mantra um you can't make money with planes that aren't in the air and that's why they their southwest has you know significantly uh like like it, it contributes to their profitability that they they're take that takes them less time to deep disembark and embark on a, a flight and they keep most of their planes yeah. in the air. Well, a, an Uber car that isn't being driven isn't making money. And But that if people stop buying cars and just leaving them in their garage parked all night, um, I don't know. That, that could, to me, be terribly disruptive to the auto industry in terms of the number of cars being bought. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. And that's... See, uh, the dream that you have of, of better utilization of cars is exactly also Google's dream when it came to uh, 
you know, to, to their motivation for driverless cars because they, they – but the, here's the interesting thing. This is where the theory comes into play again is that let's say uh, you follow the logic of Google and their their algorithmic approach to, to autonomy and then you follow Uber's logic and you ask – here's a good question. Let's say you see both of them pointing in the direction of of uh, the – the uh, you know sort of depopulating cities with with automobiles and 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 increasing utilization of auto, automobiles, and so who wins? Because this is where the where you have to have another way of thinking and theorizing about it. Because the problem I think is that in the case of Google, they're just saying we understand where we're going. We're going to get there through a process of 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 research, and we're gonna we're gonna ship. Uh, uh, the product when it's ready, and that's where where I think that's kind of a deliberate approach. Where it's Uber is just going to follow its nose and go down that path, and maybe it'll get there, maybe it won't. But all the time it does it, it learns, and all the time it does it, it it's profitable. And so if that's the my my bet would be that Uber will get there faster. So that's 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 how I would I would analyze that. But it's it's a great story. It's a wonderful. Um, Do you analysis. think? Here's my question about Uber: Is how does Uber protect their lead? What keeps other companies from saying, oh, I see what they're doing. Let's all do that too. And then all of a sudden, the the whole idea of anything you could use Uber for is commoditized. Some of it is just plain, uh, just plain uh, running as fast as you can. So one thing, obviously, is that they're they're um, they're recruiting drivers as quickly as possible. They're re- they're recruiting users as quickly as possible. Establishing as many cities as possible. So they're running essentially in the land grab uh, scenario, where you you identify the resources that you need: drivers, cars, uh, uh, passengers, and and regulation. And you just like sweeping the land with that. Um, and then you you assume there's a f- first mover advantage. Of course, others can come in, but you realize it's heavy lifting. Similarly, you could have said, well, why you know when Google stumbled upon search as the answer, why didn't everybody else? I mean, yes, their algorithms were better, but there were other search engines. And partly it was like Google doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on yeah. on servers and on infrastructure, and that was basically that was their that that was their secret sauce. It was brute force. It was just running really fast. And so in the early years, that's and, what you and they were obsessively uh, and, 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 obsessively. And, focused yeah. on response times like like to a degree yes. like yes. where other search engines were measuring response times in seconds and google was already measuring in tenths of a second and and right and so experience was important and but but ultimately it was like they did the heavy you know they designed their own data centers they designed their own servers at a time when all of those things you could buy and even even rent uh, and and so why did they need to go so deep in the guts of their of their operations? Because they realized that the thing that they needed to tweak the most was that performance metric and the scaling metric, and so that let them essentially run like wildfire and capture share. And again, same thing with Microsoft, by the way, and others who came before. It's this this driving driving force that you're just going to go as fast as you can because you know you know where you're going, you know you know what what you're doing. And the other guys are just not sure if that's worth committing how many billions, you know? And especially the big guys, they're like, I don't get this. Yeah, I, 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 and the thought I had about it was sort of the way that as long as they, as long, you know, the, the first mover advantage is, is real, but it, you have to kind of stay focused on still being the best, even if it's in small ways. And I, the thing that made me think about it was a tweet from, uh, 
our friend, uh, the guy who stole my shirt, Ben Thompson, this week, where he, he mentioned that he was in San Francisco, obviously, for WWDC, too, and had a couple of uh, coupons or codes or something to get free rides in Lyft, and he had been meaning to try it. He'd never tried the service. And here he'd, he'd gone back home to uh, Taipei and had forgotten to use them and had taken an Uber every time he got in a car in San Francisco simply <laughs> out of habit and that the habits matter. That without even thinking about it, he'd forgotten to try Lyft even though he was going to be able to try it for free. Yeah. And it, to me, that just speaks to the power of the first mover advantage. Yeah, power of first mover, power of defaults, power of of being the go-to thing that people hire right away. And so there is something, but that's, again, that's earned. It's not something that uh, that uh, you can get to before you actually do great work. It has it, it comes as a, as a, as a byproduct of, of building the brand and building the experience and all those other things. So knowing to focus on the right thing at the right time, knowing to put all the chips on the table when you know you have a good hand, that's really at first of course you got to get the chips but that's the thing is that the, the the magic of the entrepreneur is the one that is, that is able to to parlay every advantage into another one and then but bet again and again and again doubling down every time and shifting their strategy all along the way and pivoting as they call it these days uh that's that's the magic of it uh i could not agree more so let's wrap it up we're nearing the two hour mark uh horace did you thank you ex Extraordinarily for your time. What a fascinating conversation. Here's where people people can find out more at uh, first your website, asymco, A-S-Y-M-C-O dot com. Uh, you've got your own podcast, The Critical Path, over uh, with uh, 5 by 5 Go to 5 by 5tv uh, and find uh, your podcast, The Critical Path. Uh, and what else? Where, where are you on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, it's just at asymco. At asymco, well. very good Twitter account. Uh, anything else before we go? No, thank thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been a long time. And uh, likewise, a fascinating stuff. Thank you, Horace, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.